2: Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here
1: are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa demattis Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. I'm Ann Baldwin, as you just heard, one of the hosts of this program, and so happy to have with me today Beth Connor, who is the Chief Administrative Officer for The Connection as well. And Beth, it's a beautiful morning out there, and I'm so excited to talk about not only some current events that I've uh, kind of been going around and about with a bunch of people on social media, but we're also going to speak today with Teresa Ferraro, who's been on this program before.
0: Yes. And thank you, Anne. Uh We're looking forward to a great show this morning.
1: It's going to be good. I, I'm, I'm a little fired up. I got to tell you, um, you know, earlier this week, Governor Lamont signed off on the cannabis legalization bill or whatever the heck they're calling it here in Connecticut. And I, I don't know why it's bothering me so much, but it is. Um, maybe it's because, you know, as a person in recovery, I'm a firm believer that it is a gateway drug. I'm also a native Coloradoan, and I have personally seen the impact that legalization has had on the state of Colorado and its residents there. I mean, does it mean that they've generated revenue like you wouldn't believe? Yes. But, you know, the average price of a home there is about $450,000 if, if you can even find one. And I've seen, I've seen the, my sister still lives there and my, you know, my family's still there. I've seen the crime. I've seen the traffic. I've seen so much devastation to really a state and a home that I loved. And my fear is that that's going to happen here in Connecticut now. But that's just again, that's my personal opinion, and uh, I don't I don't see it as anything other than a money grab. But that's just me.
0: So I, you know, there's ahead. so many considerations, and I think we've all seen uh, seen the news reports, and I think we all have our own opinions on you know whether it's good or whether it's not so good. But certainly, at the connection, um, we work with people in various stages of recovery, and we do have a zero tolerance for. Uh, drugs and alcohol in our programs, Um, which leads me to the introduction of our guest, uh, who's here to talk about one of our programs today. Uh, Teresa Ferraro is a service director. She is the service director of Community and Residential Behavioral Health at The Connection. Um, Teresa, you've been with us for how many years now?
2: Um, It was just nine years in May.
0: You're right around the same time that I started at the Connection. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I remember now. We were newbies way back then, but welcome, Teresa. Teresa, thank you for having me. Yeah, you oversee uh, which programs at The Connection? Can you give us a list? Oh,
2: I I mean, I could. There's a lot of them. (laughs) I think there's about 17 or 18. You know, over the years, you start to lose count. Um, But they're all wonderful and and they're all very meaningful to me. So I oversee our our statewide behavioral health services that include various levels of care. It includes our residential levels of care, our community-based case management level of care, our permanent supportive housing for um, homeless individuals. It also includes um, the Eddy Shelter in, in Middletown, Connecticut.
1: And that's really what we're going to talk about today, Teresa. It's so good to have you back on the show again. But let's go back to kind of the introduction because I'm curious to know, as someone who's been in the industry of behavioral health and addiction as long as you have. Um, Mm -hmm. What do you, I know you obviously haven't seen the impact of legalization yet, um, but kind of what is your take on legalization? I know there have been a lot of groups out there against it, but it's here to stay because, you know, his big reason is why our neighbors are doing it. Why shouldn't we? So I'm just curious to to know if you think it's going to have an impact down the road on your shelters.
2: Well, I imagine it will. I think, you know, with any substance, that can lead to abuse. If it's readily accessible, it's likely going to be used. Um, And now that marijuana is um, legalized, I I can expect that we will see an increase in use, but as as Beth mentioned, um, the connection is a substance-free environment, so um, with regard to alcohol, that's that's also prohibited at our programs. That doesn't mean that we don't see issues with it, but there are rules that we need to enforce and there are expectations for um, the individuals who are in our care to um, be prohibited from those substances while they're in our programs. And so I just imagine that as, as this bill is signed and, and it becomes more readily available, that we'll certainly have to address it with the
0: people that we serve. One step at a time. So, Teresa, right. talk a little bit for our listeners uh, who don't know about the Eddy Shelter, um, our, sure. our one shelter in the, in the, in the state.
2: Yeah, so the Eddy Shelter is in Middletown. It is an emergency homeless shelter that provides placement um, for homeless men and women. Um, we also do have some beds uh, specifically avail- available for the young adult population, those between the ages of 18 and 23. Um, and we provide emergency shelter to those who are experiencing homelessness. They can gain access to the shelter by calling 211, and then they're prioritized um, based on their vulnerability, which really involves their length of homelessness
0: and where they're currently staying. And how many beds uh, do we have at the shelter currently? How many are uh, available?
2: Well, so our census is is 40. And, And at any given time, we have 30 to 40 of those beds filled. But with the COVID pandemic we decreased our census to to 75 so we're slowly going back up to our capacity and the reason that that's um, taking some time for us is because we had to make sure that the environment was socially distanced. so typically we have four people to a room we have two bunk beds but in order to comply with the CDC guidelines we had to remove two beds and then spread out um, our residents in other rooms. So we had to decrease our census census for a little bit as things begin to open up and, and we get different guidance from the governor and the CDC we will begin to add
0: those beds back.
1: So let me ask you, okay. um, Teresa, what happens to the folks when you have to downsize, if you will, a bit uh, good news right. that you're coming back to normal. But um, how long is it usually taking folks to access shelter? And I got a, one other footnote. I've actually been to the Eddie Shelter and back pre-COVID. And so I can see exactly what you're talking about. And I also saw, you know, you've actually got staff there on hand 24-7. So it's a supervised environment.
2: Yes, it is supervised 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We never close. Um, You know, with the state of Connecticut, specifically the the homeless provider population was faced with, is is what do we do with these shelters? Because typically shelters in Connecticut are just big open rooms with many, many cots. So as you may know and our listeners may or may not know, there was a, a, a large movement to decompress all the shelters in the state of Connecticut and decompress the individuals to hotels where there was more space. The Eddie Shelter did not have to do that, thankfully, because of the space that we have on our campus. So we've remained open, and we've remained open to admissions throughout the entire process of COVID. Um, so we've been able to move people on. Certainly, people have stayed longer, and that's something that the Department of Housing has worked with us on, and they understand that we've had folks with longer lengths of stay because the 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 housing the movement in in the housing placement really slowed down. Um, but it, we remained open to admissions, as I mentioned, unless we had a positive case in the shelter at that time, a positive COVID case, and then we would shut down for a period
0: of isolation and then reopen up. And it's been a challenging year, Teresa, hasn't it, with with COVID? I know uh, our one of our biggest concerns was the shelter because of the nature of our guests coming in and out of the location. Talk a little bit about sort of what protocols were in place and and how we were able to keep folks safe and relatively safe. Um, COVID-free during the pandemic.
2: Sure. So certainly, you know, in March of 2020, um, we found ourselves in a situation where we all immediately became first responders and frontline workers without any preparation or training. And as Beth mentioned, we had to work immediately to create plans to support the health and safety of our staff and guests alike. Um, so we worked very closely with our executive leadership team to contribute to these plans and to these policies of how we would be able to maintain six feet of social distancing among all people, um, immediately wear masks, working with the, the city of Middletown um, to make sure we had enough masks for the entire population, face shields, any kind of protective suits, um, and then really... Be able to focus on the sanitation of all of the common touch points, which is pretty much everything in a shelter, and then providing our guests with the the, the cleaning products so they could then maintain the interior of their rooms and and, and the bathrooms that they share. Um, it certainly has provided an extra layer of stress um, and expectation on our our staff, and certainly then, as I mentioned, you know we had throughout the last year and a half um, several individuals who tested positive for COVID. And so then we had to create isolation rooms and quarantine rooms, and we had to create policies that if, if individuals needed to receive medications, how are we going to deliver those medications to them? So again, being very meticulous and, and very specific of, of what process should do our, is our staff following to make sure that everyone's health and safety um, is of the utmost importance. And so it's certainly been um, a, a year that has changed on a daily basis. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I, you know, I give all the credit to our shelter staff, um, who have remained consistent and have remained positive through such an, you know, just a really unbelievable year. None that any of us could have predicted and none that any of us had any experience with handling, but, you know, we are so grateful for, for the staff at the shelter. They're amazing. Um, and they've maintained, as I said, they've maintained operations throughout um, this whole process.
1: Right. Wow. Amazing job. And again, hats off to the staff at the Eddie Center and, and really all your staff. I think you, you can speak to this, too, Beth. It's been challenging for a lot of organizations. Um, some of many have had to transition to telehealth um, and really kind of recreate themselves and figure things out. But I know. Yeah. Um, but it's worked. And I believe that the good news is that telehealth may be here to stay. Let's hope um, they've extended it. And so that more people actually have access because there's so many barriers that aren't in between that, right? Like transportation, uh, there have been, you know, grants, federal grants, local grants for people for technology to access telehealth. So um, it really, parts of this have really been a blessing, I guess. The blessing and the problem, as my mom always said. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Teresa Ferraro and she is the um, executive director. She runs the behavioral health services division at the connection and we're talking about the shelter program. Teresa, I'm curious to know. So if you could kind of walk us through the process from the beginning to access the Eddie Center or any of your services, starting with 211, then to the shelter, then what happens to these individuals after that or what's the plan? So once someone
2: accesses two one one and they're able to be put on our by name list to be identified for emergency placement. Once they're at the shelter, what's going to happen is that they're going to work with a case manager and a housing case manager to identify what their needs are in terms of what level of support do they require to be able to return to an independent housing situation. Um, From there, we're going to work with the local coordinated access network on permanent placement. Um, And that, that process can take anywhere from six months to a year. I mean, ideally it it happens quicker than that, but I would say on the average over the past year, that's really what we're looking at right now. And so what we do is we work with community providers in the Middlesex County area to identify what housing is available, what permanent supportive, most oftentimes subsidized housing is available, and, and we match the most vulnerable individuals. So your vulnerability in terms of homelessness really depends on the length of time that you've been homeless living on the streets. And from there, what happens when someone is placed in permanent supportive housing, that case management continues. So there is a warm handoff. Sometimes they remain within services with the connection, but sometimes they go to other providers. And along that way, what we're doing is we're always assessing and identifying what behavioral health or or physical health needs that person requires to really help them further stabilize and, and be in a situation where they can maintain that housing when it becomes
0: available to them. And that's a long-term goal. You know, you talked about uh, partners and working with other uh, providers in the community. And I know uh, during COVID, we actually relied uh, probably more so on some of these other providers in the community to deliver services uh, to people. Uh, I'm thinking of the vaccine clinics that were set up mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. were a great success. Talk a little bit about sort of the resistance, you know, that you faced with um, our guests receiving the vaccines and, and how you work through that Partnering with other organizations to deliver how many vaccines was it? I, I know it was a, it was oh gosh, a big number.
2: Over a hundred, o- over yeah. hundred. Um, so one of our partners, community health centers in in Middletown, um, who the Eddie Shelter in particular works very closely with, um, they were able. We were able to partner with them to provide an on-site clinic. Um, For for the vaccine, and so that was open to Eddie Shelter guests, but that was also open to Eddie Center guests. That was open to connection staff, um, and that was open to other residents of our programs in in the middletown area and i believe that we were able to give over 102 vaccines i think that was the number and so we had to give those in two parts because it was the moderna right and so we gave them the moderna and and then three weeks later folks had to come back for their second dose so that's no easy feat um especially with the community that included people who were homeless living on the streets. so for those folks to be able to come back to keep track of that. That was a really significant effort on our part, on the on the community health center part. Um, you know And I with regard to vaccine hesitancy, I, I really again have to give a, a lot of credit to our staff who all of my staff who I've I've been you know working with throughout this this pandemic, when the vaccine became available to us, a lot of us said, you know, we want to be the role models. We want to be that support for our residents to say, listen, this is safe. This is important. This is our duty to protect the health of everyone to get this vaccine. Mm -hmm. Certainly it was not required of anyone. It wasn't mandated, but that really made a big difference um, among the people that we serve. When they saw the staff members signing up, being there, getting their vaccines together with the people that we serve, it was really powerful.
0: And I think it really made a difference and recruited more people who were maybe on the fence. Absolutely. And you know, you hear about essential employees and how necessary and how important their roles were during the pandemic. Our staff are, you know, rock stars, uh, truly, mm-hmm. um, yeah. to be able to keep services going, not miss a beat, uh, provide the needed care and services that uh, we always have pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. and we found a way to make it work. Uh, it was difficult, um, but across yeah. the board, I think uh, we didn't drop any balls, and uh you know, great job for you, great job for your staff, and all of our staff members at the Connection. We're really proud of everybody.
1: You should be absolutely. I agree. Now, Teresa, you've been uh, at the Connection. You, you mentioned about nine years, so long enough mm-hmm. to, I'm sure, have at least one favorite success story. Because isn't that always the goal, oh, right? Somebody, <laughs> somebody enters a program or enters a service, and uh, you you want to you want to see them succeed. And I know, being at yeah. some of the the Connections events, I've met some of the people and I've heard some of their stories. But I'm just curious. Do you have a favorite?
2: Well, I have many favorites. Okay, you get pick one. Pick and, one. Okay. Yeah, and and one that's fresh in my mind, and actually, this is one um, coming from the Eddie Shelter, specifically coming from our young adult beds. Uh, we had an individual who came to us 18 years old, was still in high school, um, and homeless. And so, mm-hmm. just to think of of those two things combined, um, that we have a young 18 year old kid, basically, who's homeless and living in an emergency shelter. And what our program director, Leanne Borkowski, at the shelter was able to do with, with also, also the assistance of Stacey Hooker, another one of our program directors, was to make sure that this individual remained connected to the school district and had the tools that he needed, the resources that he needed to graduate from high school. So we have an individual, wow. 18 years old, homeless in high school. In a pandemic the leadership at the shelter was able to make sure that he stayed connected they got in touch with the school district he got a laptop he got what he needed and he graduated with his peers
1: oh wow that's a great story that is great where is he where is he now
2: you know what i'm not sure where he is now he he's he may still be at the shelter but he was i think the other thing that speaks to that is that the individual was really kind of saying well i don't know i guess it's not a big deal and the staff there said it's absolutely a big deal And he said, I I don't really want anything. I don't want a cake or anything. And and I said, you guys have to do something for him. You don't have to make it a big production, but Mm -hmm. you want to make it it known how proud you are of his perseverance. And I think that any of us could put ourselves in this person's shoes, even just an inch in his shoes, and say, what on earth would I possibly do if I found myself at 18 years old and homeless? Mm -hmm. I could never imagine that. But without the Eddie Shelter, I, I, I hate to think where this individual might be now.
1: Great story and congratulations on you know the graduation, like you said, because people took interest in him above and beyond. Above and beyond, really the program, and, and isn't that what it's all about? So how do you how do you survive? Where do you get your um, your your things, your materials, your food, your your all the things that you need um, for the shelter? Where does that come from?
2: Yeah, so we do get some funding from the Department of Housing and from the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, but like with all of our Grant-funded programs, it's just not enough. Um, The individuals that we serve need more. So we rely a lot on the community. We rely a lot on private donations. Um, A lot of the opportunities that we had pre-COVID just weren't available to us anymore. So for instance, we used to get food delivered from Wesleyan University. um, And once they left back in March, um, as everyone else did, um, we were no longer able to get that food. And then the soup kitchen closed, and so our guests were no longer able to go out to the soup kitchen to get food. So we bought some non-perishable food with with dollars that we had, and then were able to partner with the soup kitchen for a period of time and get meals from them because they were still making meals, just couldn't have people in the soup kitchen. Um, But we're now in a situation again where the soup kitchen is opening back up, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but there still remains a lot of unmet needs at the shelter. Per- uh, um, non-perishable food items is one. Personal care items is another. Um, bedding, um, sheets, blankets, towels. Because of the high turnover, and even because we have folks there for a period of time, it- it's important that we maintain a very hygienic environment.
0: So all new donations, right, Teresa? Nothing. Yeah, new all new donations. Sure. And, and we can accept them at our main office. Uh, which is located at 100 Ross Common, that's R-O-S, as in Sam, C-O-M-M-O-N, Drive, Suite 203. It's up on the second floor here in Middletown. Um, coordinating would be our uh, development director, Allison de Blasio, and she can be reached at 860-682-5927. That's 860-682-5927. And, you know, these, these donations are so important for these folks. As you said, Teresa, our funding doesn't cover some of these. You know, you may think of them as smaller things, but to these individuals, it, it's huge, right? These, mm-hmm. these folks have nothing. Um, so so to have linens and clean linens and towels and, you know, personal care items I know we've collected in the past, mm-hmm. um, you know, blankets, things that are just basic needs um, are so important. Absolutely. Is there any type of drive that you think would be uh, important now? I know we've done things like, you know, sock drives. We've done Mm -hmm. blanket drives. You mentioned the uh, non-perishable food items. What do you think are some of the biggest needs right now at the shelter?
2: I think, you know, a great ongoing need at the shelter, aside from the products that I mentioned, such as personal care products, are are always, and especially um, in light of COVID-19, are cleaning products. Um, we can never have enough. Um, we we don't have the opportunity to have the facility professionally cleaned on a regular basis, but that is absolutely something that would be of a great benefit to to everyone. Because as we move forward, I think you know the the our awareness of infectious diseases has just become part of everything that we do every day. So you know, as as much as I hope and pray that we we are we come to a time where COVID is no longer. Um, the driving force and everything that we do. There's still germs and diseases to be spread, and when you have high, such a high turnover of individuals um, who who aren't coming from clean places to begin with, we always need more cleaning products.
1: You know, you make a good point, Teresa, and everybody loves a clean spot and a warm bed, right? So it just adds to right. the adds to the environment, and and I think we can all agree it's uh, too early to let our guard down yet. So we have to keep, you know, stay on top of things. And so, again, you know, they're really looking for new items. If you have something that's that's new that you want to drop off. And by personal care items, I'm assuming you mean things like shaving cream and shampoo and deodorant. Think about what you use to get in the shower and to get out of the shower, right? Those types of things, correct? Right. 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 Mm-hmm, absolutely. So again, the address, if you'd like to coordinate drop off, as Beth mentioned, you can um, call the folks over at The Connection prior to Allison de Blasio, and the address there is 100 Ross Common Drive, R-O-S-C-O-M-M-O-N Drive, Suite 203. And also, if you're interested in The Connection or any of their programs, we encourage you to also go to the website, which is theconnectioninc.org. Again, theconnectioninc.org. Well, Teresa Ferraro, I think uh, some of the key messages that I heard in this conversation are, you know, that your staff has really not skipped a beat. If anything, they've just been, you know, tried and true to their mission of helping folks, especially in this situation, homeless folks. So so that's fantastic. And we're hoping that maybe some of our listeners will help you out with some of your wish lists. That would be great, too. So this has been a great conversation. And um, you know, I know that you guys are making a difference and that's really what matters. It benefits all of us when, when things like this happen and for sharing the story of the 18 year old who showed up homeless and ended up graduating from high school. Thanks to, you know, the inspiration and the support of the staff around him. I love stuff like that.
2: Me too. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you,
1: Teresa. And Beth, thanks for being with me today and keeping me company.
0: You're
1: welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Love to. Yes, it, it was a lot of uh, a lot of great conversation. Again, Teresa Ferraro, thank you so much for being our guest today, and as usual, thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Connection, right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. So.